Luke 8, 26 to 39. And let me just very briefly ask the Lord to help us as we come to the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again call on you and collectively ask you to cause the ministry of your word to do its work in us by your spirit. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us to hear your voice, to see your power, to see your compassion, to see your mercy. We pray, our God, that you would draw us to your Son, build us up in him, root us in him, and cause us to exalt in him and trust him and follow him and obey him. And so, our God, we pray that you would accomplish these purposes in us and all of your purposes among us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 8, beginning in verse 26, Luke, the beloved physician, uh, giving us this orderly account of the Lord Jesus and his ministry, now says, Then they, that is Jesus and the disciples, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you or implore you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and was bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and the country. Then the people went out to see what happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the greatest sermons, probably that's not an overstatement, one of the greatest sermons ever preached in all of church history was a sermon preached by Thomas Chalmers, the great 19th century Scottish theologian, and the title of that sermon is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Um, And in that highly psychological, perhaps we might say, sermon, Chalmers is unpacking for people um, the way men and women work in this world in the course of desire. And, And what Chalmers says in that sermon is that everyone is constantly desiring something, Everyone is controlled by their desires. Um, Everyone is always in a state of desire for something. And in order to come off of a desire for one thing, there has to be a power to make us desire something else 
And in order to come off of desiring that, there has got to be a power at work to make us desire coming off of that to something else. Now, we feel this in our souls um, when we are grappling with our sin. We feel that sense of, I just wish there was some power to help me overcome the desire I have for this particular sin. We feel our lack of power to come off of that desire for another desire. But this is a, this is a common human experience. Chalmers in that sermon uh, talks about the phases in which you see this in human growth and development. He says the boy, taking any boy, the boy ceases at length to be the slave of his appetite, but it is because a manlier taste has now brought it into subordination. So little boys like uh, sticks and rocks and throwing sticks and rocks at each other. And they like baseball cards when I was a kid, and they like cars, toy cars. And then when they become a little bit older, they trade those desires for something more manly, more manly desires, Chalmers says. And, and those earlier desires are brought into subordination. And he says, uh, therefore, the youth ceases to idolize pleasure, but it's now because the idol of wealth has become stronger. And we know that in our lives, don't we? When you're young, you desire certain things. When you get a little older, these things seem more important. There's, there seems to be a greater power drawing, up, drawing us off of those desires onto something else. Chalmers says, there is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but as to its desire for having some other object, this is unconquerable. You will always be desiring something, and there will always be powers pulling you to desire something. Now, I tell you that because in the account before us, we have several people who come into this encounter with Jesus, and their lives are gripped by certain things that have power over them. You have the man, the demoniac. He has subtly, perhaps, his life has drifted so far that he has opened himself up to uh, spiritual forces of darkness that have kind of consumed him, controlled him, taken him over, taken away his freedom, taken away his joy, taken away his life, and he is there living among the dead, and he has gotten what he gave himself over to in many respects. And then toward the end of this account, there are townspeople that come out, and they are controlled by their businesses. They're controlled by wealth. They're controlled by possessions. They won't have Jesus because their life is being controlled by these other things, and they think they're free in their being controlled by these things. Um, and Jesus shows us in this account that there is a power that is greater than all powers. There is a necessary power that has to draw our hearts off of this world, off of whatever it is we're desiring that controls us, and make us desire the greatest thing, which is Christ himself. Christ is the great power of God. He is the almighty power of God. Here he is coming off of that account with the disciples where he has just calmed the winds and the waves of the storm with a word. He has such power that he can speak and command the winds and the waves and they obey him. And now as the ship has come and Luke tells us that the disciples who were themselves being dealt with by Jesus and taught about this power, they they are being now drawn over into a new region. And Luke tells us that they sailed now to the country of the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now, the first thing for you to take note of here before we look at this is that Jesus is moving out into Gentile territory now. He is, in a sense, bordering 
the Gentile world. Remember, Jesus, his ministry was basically in Israel through the, the bulk of it, but his purposes were always to have the gospel move out into the nations. And so he's giving us a prelude of that. He's giving us a prelude of missions. If you came to Sunday school this morning, you heard about um, the recent trip to Haiti and the work that's being done there. And that's a testimony that Christ has moved to the nations. This church is a testimony that Christ has moved to the nations. We, by the way, are not Jews by nature. These are the coastlands. God has, has spread the Abrahamic covenant out to the nations, sent the gospel out, and here there is a prefiguration of that where Jesus is showing us his purposes and his plan to reach here are these 10 cities that were full of Gentiles who were living far off from Israel, far off from the hope of God's promises, far off from his covenant nurture and privileges. And no sooner does he step out on land, Luke tells us that he meets there a man from the city who had demons. Now, this morning we're going to see three things as we consider Uh, this idea of the need for power. You need power. I need power. This passage is about power. It's about the power that you lack and that you need. And and I think it really sets out for us these three things. First, we're going to consider the power of evil um, as it's at work in this man. And then we're going to consider the power of Jesus. And then we're going to look at the power of unbelief, the power of evil, the power of Christ, the power of unbelief. Well, uh, demon possession is not something that's popular in intellectual circles. Uh, our culture feels as if it has gotten beyond it. We know all the answers scientifically. We have all the answers technologically. We are a sophisticated people. We know that clearly what this man has is a mental illness. You know, it, it's taken me a while to sort of get to this point where I've come to understand how damaging it is for us to accept preconceptions that are fed us uh, by the television and the newspaper and all the media sources and what an impact that has on us and how we, we kind of imperceptibly carry with us these preconceptions about things. Yeah, we're beyond that. We're beyond the realm of this wacky supernatural demonology. We're beyond that. And yet at the same time, people will believe in aliens and zombies and Bigfoot No, I mean really believe in in those things. And they won't believe in forces of darkness and evil that are at work in this world all around us. Um, And if there is no devil and if there are no demonic forces, then somebody else is occupying Satan's throne right now. (laughs) That's for sure. And, uh, you know, Tim Keller has this great thought about the complexity of human life and the complexity of your life and the complexity of the world around us. He says, evil and misery and problems and difficulties in our lives are complex. Who doesn't feel that? Who doesn't feel the complexity of evil and misery and problems and difficulties in our lives? Keller says, if you move out into the world with a less nuanced or less complex understanding than the Bible, if you don't see the complexity of what the Bible says about you, that evil and misery are both out in the world and in your heart, that it is both natural and supernatural, that it is both individual and corporate, it's going to defeat you. So if you don't get a robust biblical understanding of why things are the way they are and why we are the way that we are, if you don't come to understand the complexity of these things, it's going to defeat you. If you just just reduce it down and you say, you know what, I think getting through life is the power of positive thoughts. 
it's going to defeat you. If you think getting through life is, I just need to do better, try harder, I just need to obey, I just need to, I just need to give myself rigorously to a life of obedience, it's going to defeat you. If you just say, you know, I need to realize the spiritual forces of darkness all around me, and I just need to live in this hyper-supernaturalistic realm of charismatic mysticism, it's going to defeat you. You see, if you pick any of those things, and you pick one, and you say, this is how I'm going to explain everything around me, um, and I'm going to reduce it all down to that, you're never going to make it through life. That's why we have an account like this. Uh, You have in this story this extreme example of this man who has opened himself up probably progressively. Um, There's there's no sense in which we should think that this man uh, has been like this his whole life. Uh, There's the sense in which Luke tells us that he was at one time living in the city, living among his family, living in a home, and, and over time he had opened himself up to more and more spiritual darkness and Uh, more and more influences of the evil one, and now he's being possessed and oppressed in such an extreme way, the most extreme picture we see in the Gospels, that the people in the city had bound him to to these caverns, these underground caverns uh, in a graveyard to put him away because he functionally was um, useless to humanity, he was useless to the city, he was a threat to everyone, he was a threat to himself, he's even hurting himself, he's cutting himself, Um, This man is a picture of the destruction and the power of evil that Satan wishes he could exert over everyone, even as he exerts power over the whole world in different ways. Um, John Calvin, when he is looking at this man, he says, uh, we learn from this that the devil does not only torment men in the present life, but pursues them even to death and that in death his dominion over them is chiefly exercised. So the evil one wants to bring this man to the place of death itself, leave him there tormenting him, stripping away all his freedom, all his joy, and he is utterly enslaved um, and utterly consumed by the forces of darkness. Now, that may not be true of you. You may not be the Gadarene demoniac. You certainly don't look like the Gadarene demoniac. Um, You drive nice cars. You have nice homes. You're paying your bills. You have nice dinners. You do nice things. You travel. Uh, But like Chalmers said, you know, all of us know what it is to be enslaved internally. Every one of you knows what it is to be enslaved to sin internally because every one of us by nature is a slave to sin The Apostle Paul actually says in Ephesians 2 that all of us by nature walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now, I think Paul says that to those who were converted in the church of Ephesus because they wouldn't think that about themselves if he hadn't told them. Isn't that ironic that you can be absolutely enslaved absolutely under the sway of the evil one, consumed by and controlled by whatever desires you have, and not even know it, not even be recognizing what's actually happened to you. Uh, Rebecca Piper, in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, has this great uh, quote. I don't know if you've ever heard this. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled 
by whatever the Lord of our life may happen to be. I found that to be supremely intriguing. You are all controlled by something. Money, power, possessions, pleasure, all of us. Whatever controls you is your God. Um, Here this man is controlled by these forces of darkness. Uh, The power of evil has has enslaved him and and trapped him. Notice that um, he is so overtaken that he's out of his mind. When Jesus steps off, this man meets him. And Jesus has a conversation with this man, but you don't know if Jesus is talking to this man or if he's talking to the thousands of demons that have possessed him. Notice that um, uh, the power of evil over this man is seen in that it seems as though he is not speaking to Jesus. He cries out. He falls down before him with a loud voice. He says, notice verse 28, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now, that's, that's the first interesting point. Jesus isn't there to torment him. Jesus is there to set him free. Um, I think there's an irony there that when somebody's life is under the power of evil, they have convinced themselves that what they're doing is true freedom and that if Jesus takes that away, they'll be unhappy and tormented. There's nothing about this man's life that should lead you to think that he has any joy, any freedom, any real lasting satisfaction or pleasure. He has, he has been utterly destroyed by what's happened to him under the influence of the evil one. And yet, whenever he or the demons in him address Jesus, they do so by begging him not to torment him. Now, Somebody in this congregation asked me the other day, reading ahead and preparing for this week, they said, how did the demons know who Jesus was? Um, It's an intriguing question. Uh, James tells us that even the demons believe and tremble. They're not saved. They know more than you do. They know better than you do, and they're not saved. Um, He is the Lord of hosts. He created the demons. He created all the angels. He's the Lord of the angels. Um, it, but here in his incarnate form, he looks just like a man. He looks like his disciples. He is among them. He is one with them. He doesn't, he doesn't have a glowing halo. He doesn't have uh, lightning bolts coming off his hands like some Thor-like uh, human weak sauce superhero who's Hammer can get crashed by his wicked sister. Everybody knows I just saw the new Thor movie. Um, (laughs) Jesus doesn't have any of that. He looks just like you and me. That's actually a pretty sad thought. Jesus looks like me. He looks just like us. Doesn't look like there's anything special about him, but the demons know who he is. Um, Certainly they had seen his miracles. They certainly had heard his teaching. Certainly um, they, they... knew, and in that sense, they were bearing witness to us. Isn't that fascinating that God even uses the demons to bear witness to us about who Jesus is? He is the Holy One. Now, there is a sense in which they are even trying to keep this man under guard when they know who Jesus is because they are demeaning who he is. In this day, in the occult world, there was this sort of superstitious uh, belief that if you conjured up 
a higher power and you knew someone's name and you, you conjured a higher power against them, you had power over them. So what this demonic force is trying to do is they are trying to exercise power over this man by suggesting that they are more powerful than Jesus. So they're, they're imploring, notice this, the Most High God over against the Son of God. Now the irony of that is that Jesus is the Most High God. The Son of God is the Most High God. There's no distinction between the Most High God and Jesus. Jesus is God. He has all authority and power, but what they're doing subtly is saying, in order to try to keep this man enslaved, that there is a higher power than Jesus, and that they have power over Jesus by calling on his name under that higher power. We call this superstition. And notice that Jesus had commanded the man to come out, commanded the demon and the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Now, uh, this army, and we're going to call it that, this army of evil spirits who had uh, taken control of this man's life. And you kind of wonder when Jesus asks what their name is, because there's a turning of the table, which we'll see in a minute. And, and they say, legion, for we are many. You almost get the sense that this man has been over here isolated from everyone who he had once loved and had fellowship with, his life completely stripped away from him. He is, he is living among the dead. And you get the sense that as he's living there in the tombs, day by day and week by week, he's hearing the Roman armies marching by or seeing them pass by. He's seeing them. And he's seeing these, these legions of armies coming by. And as he has been controlled by these demons, he's processing that in the spiritual realm. And he says to Jesus, we are legion for we are many. Now that's a, that's a call to arms. Uh, this is the great battle, isn't it? Why did Jesus come into the world? He came into the world to destroy the works of the evil one. He is the long-awaited seed of the woman. He came to crush the head of the serpent, right? He's already faced off against Satan in, in the wilderness. He's already, he's already overcome the temptations, the initial uh, battle against the evil one himself. He's gone out. He's cast out demons. Now he comes to what is perhaps the greatest... Uh, affront and assault that he has in his messianic ministry since facing off against Satan. And, and it is the great spiritual battle, and it's a battle for the souls of people. It is the battle for this man's soul. Um, you know, the Bible makes very clear that God doesn't give help to fallen angels. That should make you thankful that you're not an angel. Uh, he gives help to the seed of Abraham. He gives help to fallen sinners that he chooses in his son like you and me. And uh, this man is one such, and he came to help and redeem and deliver people like this, and it means that there has to be power. There has to be power that can overcome the power that has taken this man's life away from him. There has to be a greater power, as Chalmers would say, an expulsive power of a new affection. It's the only way this man's life is going to be healed. Now, remember, Jesus had power over the disruptive forces of nature— in the last account, the wind and the waves, the storm, here his power is shown to be more glorious and more splendid and more magnificent in that he shows that he has power over the disruptive forces of evil and the turbulent hearts of men and women. He is 
he is going to exercise all of this power and pinpoint it directly to this man's life and heart and mind. Um, That's good news for us. I don't know about you. I find myself calling out to the Lord for power in my life constantly. Um, I find myself constantly saying, Lord, I need more of your power in my life. Now, we don't have that. We don't have the almighty power of Christ to be at work in our life then we're inevitably going to go somewhere else to try to overcome the desires that we've gotten dissatisfied with or that we feel enslaved to. And we're just going to be in bondage to those things. It's the only power that can pull our hearts off of the enslaving power of sin and the influences of the evil one. Now, um, these demons and the power of Christ is really seen here. These demons didn't come to Jesus of their own accord. Uh, remember, Jesus commands them. He commands them to come. I, I've always loved this. Jesus steps out on the shore as the almighty, divine, human, redeeming warrior that he is. And he faces off against the whole host of wickedness that has oppressed this man. And he commands them. And they have to obey him. I've always thought that's wonderful. You know, some people are like, they'll say things like, you just need to command command evil forces to go away. No, Jesus commands the forces of darkness and they obey him. He is the Lord. John Calvin again has this great meditation. He says, the demons did not come to Christ of their own accord. In the presence of Christ, they were drawn by a secret exercise of authority. They had formerly been accustomed to carrying men off in furious violence to the tombs. Now a superior power compels them to appear reluctantly at the tribunal of their judge. That's who Jesus is. He is the judge of demonic forces of evil that are far more powerful than we are. We don't even understand them. We would rather believe in aliens and zombies. And yet all around this world, There are forces of darkness at work all around us, everywhere. And Jesus is the judge, and he commands them, and they have to appear before his divine tribunal. This is a prelude of Judgment Day. This is Jesus exercising his almighty power over demons. Now, the power of Jesus is also seen over the animal realm, Uh, apparently demons don't like to be disembodied. I don't know why. Please don't ask me after. Why do demons like to be in living, moving, animated uh, creation? I don't know. Why do they particularly like to be in image bearers? I don't know. But apparently the demons can't stand to be incorporeal. And (laughs) they go, knowing their time has come, knowing the divine judge has come, knowing the almighty power of Christ to cast them out, They beg him, can we please go in those pigs? And Jesus accommodates their request. An act of common grace from Jesus to the demons. And then the pigs run violently over the edge and drown themselves. Now, I've told you this in the past. Bertrand Russell, the great uh, 20th century atheist, perhaps the most famous until Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, uh, wrote a little book called Why I'm Not a Christian, And his main argument about why he wasn't a Christian was was these pigs. If Jesus was really the Savior, 
he wouldn't have let these pigs be drowned. Um, that almost doesn't even need a refutation or a comment. Jesus cares more about people than pigs. If that doesn't comfort you, I don't know what will. Jesus cares more about you than animals. Jesus came to save people. Jesus came to restore a people for himself. Jesus came to show all of his divine mercy and grace to men and women like you and me, to men and women like this gathering demoniac. Um, His power is, in one sense, we can say reserved for those he's redeeming. Isn't that a wonderful thought? I want you to think about that this morning. Jesus' power is reserved for those he is redeeming. That's a comforting thought to me because he's redeemed me. And that means the power I need, the power I lack, is all there in him and it's all reserved to work in my life. In all those ways where my heart is pulled off and enslaved by other things and mastered by other things and where I need that power to be at work. Um, Jesus is going to heal this man. Now, he is, on one hand, going to do something very marvelous. He's going to do what no one else can do. He is going to take someone that no one else could help. No doubt doctors had tried to help this man. No doubt family members had tried to help him. I'm sure there have been plenty of interventions. Um, Chaining him to the tombs was an intervention by his family and supposed friends. No one could do anything for him. Jesus steps off the boat, and with a word, he heals him. With a word. Notice that Luke gives us that striking picture of how wonderful this healing is. Um, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, verse 34, they fled, told it in the city and the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Uh, It's a picture of the total restoration that Jesus brings people. This man was not sinless now. He would go on, no doubt, to have many struggles in life, just like you and I have many struggles on a daily and weekly basis. Uh, there's There's no sense in which we should think this man would have no more temptations, no more... Uh, assaults of the evil one, but he is healed. He is redeemed. He is restored. He is a picture of someone that has been redeemed by Jesus. Those who have been redeemed by Jesus are put in their right mind. They are clothed in his righteousness. They are sitting at his feet. They have become his disciples. They then want to follow him. This man wants to follow Jesus. They want to be with Jesus. Wherever Christ is, that's where I want to be. That's, that's this man's testimony. It's not this sort of, guess I got to go to church. This man wants to be where the Savior is. He wants to be where the expulsive power of a new affection is. He wants to be where the source of power is. He wants to be with the one who is the source of power. Um, Jesus is going to send this man back, not allow him to stay with him. He's going to send him back to his family and his friends, and he's going to send him back to be a missionary among those who couldn't have helped him in the first place, and who would have written him off. Now, I need you to listen very carefully to what Luke is about to do. It's very important what Luke is about to do. Luke is, here in the third place, going to teach us about the power of unbelief by way of contrast. 
Um, if Jesus, Sinclair Ferguson said this, I thought this was so helpful. If Jesus was some sort of super duper social worker and he brought this man back shaved, well-dressed and rehabilitated, the people would have praised him. Yes, don't miss that. If he was a super duper social worker and he figured out a way to help this guy out. I don't think you have to shave, by the way. But <laughs> Jesus had a beard. But shaved, clean shaven, washed, clothed, in his right mind, all rehabilitated. The people would have praised him. But when they realized the cost of this man's restoration, they are angry, they are fearful, and they beg Jesus to leave. What's going on? doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't they want Jesus to heal them? Well, a lot of people will say these people were angry about the pigs. That's true. This was their, this was their sort of, this was their illegal drug business. Bacon was illegal in the Old Testament. If you lived in Israel, you couldn't sell pigs and bacon. I know. It's much better to live in the New Covenant. Much better. <laughs> you can eat all the bacon you want to the glory of God. All of it. Sometimes I, I just binge on a bacon diet for like a week, and then I think this probably isn't good for me on the long term. You can eat all the bacon you want. In the Old Testament, pigs were unclean. This was an illegal business. This was a sort of bacon Gustapo drug cartel. Seriously. And the city is caught up with it. The whole city. All the people are in on this. You know, selling illegal meat was a lucrative and uh, financially prosperous, uh, we could call it a vocation, I suppose, a vocation, endeavor. And, uh, and here, all these pigs are drowned. They're all drowned. I actually don't think Jesus drowns them. They drown themselves to get rid of the demons that have embodied them and possesses them. And, and so there is a sense where the people are upset. They, they, they have lost some of their livelihood. And some writers will say, and I think they're right, they'll say when Jesus comes and he restores people, there is a sort of cleansing that happens around the area in the people he has cleansed. This man has been cleansed and those things around him, there is sort of a ripple out effect. There's been a sort of cleansing even of this area temporarily. And the people are afraid. If, if this guy sticks around, this is bad for business. That's certainly part of it. But I think there are two other things at work here, and I don't want you to miss them. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones had a sermon he preached in 1933 on this passage. He had been in the ministry five years. It's one of the greatest sermons I've ever read in my life. And, and he's observing that there are two outcomes in two ways. You're either going to be like the Gadarene demoniac who wants to follow Jesus and be with him, or you're going to be like the people in the town that think that they have it all together, don't think that they're like him, don't see their need for Jesus, don't want Jesus, and so they beg Jesus to leave, and they do everything they can to distance themselves from being around his influence. Um, Lloyd-Jones, in that sermon, he says, we insist on judging ourselves and one another by particular sins, good works, talk, etc. These are our categories. We speak of people as being respectable or not respectable. We speak of them in term, terms of cer certain particular sins and their precise way of committing them. Thereby, we confuse the whole issue and form only a superficial judgment. 
That has always been the tendency of mankind. That has always been the greatest enemy of the gospel. The whole essence of the gospel teaching is that finally nothing matters except our attitude toward Christ and the salvation which he brings us from God. So here's what these people did. They said, good for that man. Get out of here, Jesus. Good for him. Get out of here. I don't think that they were so much worried about losing the pigs as they were about losing their lives. You see, that man was a picture of those who were enslaved in sin. He had lost his freedom. And here were dignified people in the city who had their lives together, people who removed from them anyone that they thought was worse than them. And they thought that they had it together. They thought they were free, but they realized when they saw what Jesus did to this man that if he stuck around, he would do the same thing to them. And they didn't want to lose their freedoms. They would rather be controlled by money They would rather be controlled by their quest for status and possessions. They would rather hold on to their own supposed freedoms than have Jesus heal them. Now, Lloyd-Jones is going to go on in that sermon, and he's going to say, there are myriads of people just like the people in this town, and they go to churches, and they hear about Jesus, and they see other people have their lives changed by Jesus all around them. But if, even if they would never express it verbally, their inner thought toward Jesus is, get out of here. You're a threat to what I want. You are a threat to what I want. If I follow you, I'm going to be miserable. You know, it's interesting. The response of the people in this passage is the same response as the disciples when they saw Jesus' power over the storm. They were afraid. That was the, that was the response, actually, that, and, and not surprisingly, when, when almighty power flowed out of Jesus and what he did, people were fearful of that power. They saw the power of God in Christ. Um, the disciples were fearful, and he restored them, and they worked through that, and they learned to trust him, and they learned that being with him was the safest thing in the world. These people were fearful, These people were angry, and they begged Jesus to leave. And you know what Jesus did? He left. Now, you don't have to verbalize what these people verbalize to have a heart that is saying to Jesus, get out of here. Lloyd-Jones will say in that sermon that um, passive resistance to Christ is as much resistance to him as is active resistance. Passive resistance to Jesus is as much resistance to him as is active resistance to Christ. Now, that's a warning for us as we examine our lives, as we look at those things that control us, as we, I always think it's good for us to take inventory checks of our life and to say, what are the things that seem to be the Lord of my life? What seems to be the Lord of my life? Is it money? Is it sex? Is it power? Is it, is it influence? Is it fame? Is it pleasure? Is it substance abuse? What is it? There are always a million things vying to enslave us and be Lord of our life. And whatever those things are, and, and we grow tired of them, and we feel the burden of them, we can do one of two things. We can try to replace them with something else, well, I'll stop drinking and I'll go to the gym. That's a bad God. 
That's a bad Lord. Gym's great. Go to the gym. I'm not saying don't go to the gym. I'm not saying don't drink. I'm saying don't be enslaved by things and then try to overcome them by giving yourself to other things that will just further enslave you and be Lord of your life. Go to Christ. Because if you go to Jesus, the same power that he exhibits in this man, he will exhibit in your life. And when you cry out to him and say, Lord, I need your power in my life, you may not immediately see it. This man has this stark conversion. But on that day in and day out basis, the Lord Jesus will continue to supply that power in you and work in you and free you from those things that otherwise enslave you and give you victory and straighten you out and heal you and transform you and save you until you're with him for all eternity. Now, I have a friend, and I was mentioning this to uh, the people coming in new members class this morning, and the importance of regular Lord's Day worship. Why is it so important? Because a lot of times I leave here, and I don't feel like, okay, wow, I'm all different. You know, this is why a lot of people go to entertainment-driven churches. You go to a concert, you feel good, it's good. I like that. I like concerts. I like the gym. I like beer. I'm not saying don't go to concerts. I'm saying there is a slow miracle to being under the ministry of the word, and there is a slow miracle to hearing the Lord Jesus week in and week out and to be in his presence. Right now, whether you feel it or not, Christ is right in the middle of us, and all of us are responding to him, not to me, to him. And you are either saying, Lord, I want to be with you, I need more of your power, or you are saying, get out of here. You're doing one of the two. There's no neutrality. Jesus said, you're for me or you're against me. This is why people slowly stop coming to worship, by the way. It's why people often just back out slowly. That's their way of saying, get away from me, Jesus. I don't want to be around you. I don't want the transforming grace and power that you do in those around me to happen to me because then I'm going to lose my freedom and my happiness. And that's the biggest lie you could believe. Um, This man was filled with joy. This man went everywhere. Jesus said, go back, tell everybody what great things God has done for you. And he went everywhere and told everybody what Jesus did for him. There's this spontaneous overflow of joy because he has realized the expulsive power of a new affection. I want to encourage you as we close, if you are a believer, Jesus reserves his power for you because he reserves it for those that he's redeeming. So that means when you feel your need for more of his power, you go to him and you say, Lord, please give me more of that power and he will do it. And it may happen Lord's Day by Lord's Day by Lord's Day by Lord's Day, the slow miracle in which he dispenses that into your heart and life. Or it may happen instantaneously. Um, If you are hearing these things and in your heart you're responding like these people, I don't want to give up my livelihood. I don't want to give up my friends. I don't want to lose this. I don't want to lose that. I don't want Jesus to do for me what he did for this man. I would beg you to consider the, the... Stark contrast. Jesus saves the worst of the worst, and those that think that they're not like him will perish in their supposed liberty. Let him who has ears to hear 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we know there are so many lessons here, so much that we need to learn, and we pray this morning especially that you would make us to know the expulsive power of new affections by making us to know the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus in our own souls. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us more power, more victory over sin, that you would give us more of that power that you have already made us to taste. We pray for those who have never come to know your restoring and redeeming power. We pray that they would come to know that. We pray, our God, that you would make us to see uh, the sweet liberty that all of those who are with Christ experience, both in this life and for all eternity. And so, our God, we pray that you would work in us and make us to desire more of that power, even as we hear of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.